Well, Melinda and I have um, always made our decisions together, especially if it revolved around money. And we've always been able to come, some, come to some kind of agreement, except once. Some years ago, I decided to buy a motorcycle. <laughs> I had had one in college, and uh, even some of our dating was done on the back of a Yamaha 500. Uh, my friend Dennis was, uh, had a used bike for sale. He was selling his, and so it wasn't going to be a big financial burden. And I thought she would have really liked the idea of getting a bike with me, you know, and wrapping her arms around real tight. Wouldn't that be romantic? Well, she didn't. I mean, she said no emphatically. I mean, she's a strong-willed woman, but I was shocked by how she felt. And no amount of talking could convince her otherwise. I mean, I'd never run into this before. I could see that she wasn't going to change her mind. And so I bought it anyway. <laughs> Dennis rode down to the house. He brought the motorcycle down. And so it was in the garage when she came home from work that day. She didn't speak to me for about three days. It was awkward. And sometimes, I have to admit, I felt ashamed for what I had done. But when I would get on that motorcycle and I would ride down the highway with the wind blowing in me, you know, I, I'd have this tremendously wonderful feeling. I got my own way. <laughs> well, we like to have our own way, don't we? I mean, to be human is to have relationship issues. All of us today here in the room either just had an issue or currently having an issue or we're about to have one. And if we're honest, there are some people that we might count as enemies. In fact, Jesus assumed that we would because he told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And so we're beginning a new series today based on relationships called When Relationships Collide. And, and we are going to look at God's Word to see what we can learn about how we respond when we are in conflict. And we begin with a story found in 1 Samuel 24. Uh, the period known as the Judges has come to an end with the selection and coronation of Saul as the very first king of Israel. And he looks like he has all the qualities needed to be a great leader. And it doesn't hurt that he's also tall and handsome. But things begin to go south, and it appears that he has some spiritual and emotional health issues that are, are the cause of much of his problems. A young shepherd boy named David, who's also skilled on the harp, is brought into the court to provide music that, that seems to bring some temporary comfort to the distraught king. When David defeats a, a nine-foot tall Philistine warrior by the name of Goliath, he becomes a national hero, and Saul becomes jealous of his fame to the point that he tries to kill David. And so David escapes by fleeing into the wilderness of En Gedi. 
Now, En Gedi is a small oasis to the west of the Dead Sea. It rises about 2,000 feet above the sea and is topped by this vast tableland. It is a tangle of canyons and caves. It is no place to live, but it is a great place to hide. And then others begin to join this young, charismatic leader. His father comes down, then his brothers join him. And chapter 22 says that all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So not exactly the cream of the crop of Jewish society, were they? Uh, Mostly misfits and rejects and losers. And I find it interesting that a number of, of Bible characters have to spend time in the wilderness. I mean, there was Moses and, and Elijah and, and David, and even Jesus himself spent time there. Evidently, there's some things to learn in the wilderness that we can learn nowhere else. Well, Saul's intelligence service uh, discovers where David is hiding, and Saul takes about 3,000 of his best troops on a search-and-destroy mission. Saul, or David and his men are, are hiding in the back of a cave when suddenly in walks King Saul. And for a moment, they think that they have been discovered and that they're about to be captured. But Saul doesn't notice the men in the back of the cave. Instead, he turns his back to them and begins to take off his robe. And he is not there to capture them, but he is there to answer the call of nature. (laughs) And when David's men see what's going on, they believe that this is an answer to prayer, that God is fulfilling his promise to, to make David king. And they prepared to sneak up and to assassinate Saul with one swift stroke of the sword. And they think their days of hiding and living in this terrible desert will be over and David will take his place on the throne and he will unite the 12 tribes of Israel into one nation. But not David. David sees the situation completely different. He sees it as a temptation to do evil, and so he stops them. Instead, he sneaks up and he cuts a piece off of of Saul's robe, and he quietly returns to his men. Saul finishes his business. He puts his robe back on. He straps on his sword and goes outside to rejoin his army, unaware of how close he has come to death. David waits. He waits until Saul is some distance away, and then he calls out, My Lord, the King. And Saul turns around and he looks. At that moment, David does something remarkable. He bows down and he prostrates himself with his face to the ground as a sign of complete submission. Now, had that been me, I might have made some obscene gesture at Saul. (laughs) Or I might have made some sarcastic joke about seeing the king seated on his throne. (laughs) 
but not David. He bows in reverence and respect for the king. Yes, Saul is badly flawed, but he is still the Lord's anointed, and David honors that. So here's the first thing that we learn when facing conflict, and it's this. It's not about us. You see, David had every right to be angry with Saul. In fact, he might have made a good case to kill Saul as a just and righteous act, and no one would have blamed him. Saul had it coming, but he doesn't. So we need to let go of our desire to get even. In fact, Paul writes in in Romans 12, he says, never avenge yourself. Leave that to God. So if we really want to resolve conflict, we have to make a choice not to get even, not to make the offending person pay for the offense. Now, what does that mean? It means that we will not use it as leverage. That will not make that person pay by reminding them over and over of what they have done. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't uh, discuss it again in a redemptive way. It just means that you don't drag it up again with, with the idea of bashing them over the head with it. It means that you'll not bring it up, the, the offense, to others and slander the person who has offended you. You don't gossip about what the other person did. And it means that you choose not to dwell on the offense yourself. I find one of the biggest challenges when somebody has hurt me is not to replay it over and over and over again. Do you do that? Can't let it go. It's hard. Don't let the desire, don't let your desire to make the other person pay outweigh your desire to restore the relationship. Leave it to God. Now, is that possible? Sure. It's hard. But remember, too, that it's a process. It's something we have to continue to practice, even if it's something in the past for which I, I have already forgiven that person. I need to keep remembering to forget. <laughs> I need to keep remembering to forget every time that offense comes back into my mind. Every time I start to get resentful again, every, I need to let go of that desire to get even. So it's not a one-shot deal. You can, you can, you can forgive a person and really mean it, And then five minutes later, feel that pain all over again. Now, now David will never forget that Saul tried to kill him. He's not so stupid that he's going to place himself within a spear's throw again. But David understands that Saul is created in the image of God, that God has chosen him to be the leader of Israel, and that it was not his role to change that. To David, revenge was unthinkable. David was so loyal that breaking an oath was impossible. No man should be treated with scorn. When David tells Saul that he is listening to the wrong crowd, he's listening to the wrong people, that he could have killed him, but he chose not to. And and so he waves the piece of robe in his hand and he says, Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing, a dead dog? Or a flea? You see, David is saying that that I'm no one of significance. That Saul need not fear David. That he he should not believe the lies that that David was his enemy. And so at great cost and, and risk to both himself and to his men, he pursued Saul to clarify and to try to resolve 
the situation. There was a time when I did everything possible to avoid making the first move to repair a relationship. There was a time when, when my first reaction was always to avoid conflict. I saw my uncle get into a fight over money with his only son. They stopped speaking to each other. They, they stopped seeing each other. Why? Because each felt the other was in the wrong, and in their mind, it was the person who had done wrong who needed to initiate the reconciliation. And the sad thing, neither would budge. And my uncle passed away having never reconciled with his only son. How tragic is that? So what I've discovered is that delay only makes things worse. No, nobody likes conflict. No one wants to have one of those talks, but it's worth it. Jesus said in Matthew 18, he said, if a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell them, work it out between the two of you. So what would happen if we took Jesus' words to heart? What if we stopped being passive-aggressive? What if we were instead transparent and, and direct and honest about it? Jesus says, go and, and talk to the person directly. Address the person. Do it in private and do it face-to-face. I think there's a couple of good things that come from that. First of all, if you go to talk to the person privately, you're not publicly shaming them. You're giving them a chance to change their behavior without subjecting them to the court of public opinion. Now, Jesus does go on to say later on that you might need to take the, the, the matter to the entire community, but only if that becomes necessary. He said, don't start that way. It starts with a private conversation between the two parties. And I think the other effect of meeting face-to-face is you can't be anonymous You can't hide behind some kind of vague, well, other people are saying or other people are thinking. You have to be honest. You have to speak for yourself, and that's a good thing. Now, Jesus' instructions are hard to follow. It's painful to hear someone say, you've wronged me. It's even more painful to have to look them in the eye and say that. Many of us, especially the, the conflict adverse, we rather skirt around the issue, avoid talking about it, just simply sigh, roll our eyes, hoping the other person that will get the hint eventually. And so we, be, we begin to stew in our resentment until it begins to boil over into bitterness. Don't do that. Jesus is telling us how Christians ought to behave that we should be honest, that we should be forthright, that we should be direct. Now, don't get me wrong, um, being direct isn't the same thing as being rude. It's not the same thing as being harsh, though it may feel that way. Being direct means standing behind what you say, not relying on being passive-aggressive to get what you want. Being direct means addressing a disagreement head-on, face-to-face, looking the other person in the eye. You see, as Christians, we are called to address disagreements in this way. We're supposed to do it directly and honestly. The instructions in Matthew 18 challenge us to to be better, both as individuals and as the faith community. They challenge us to be more honest, more forthright, more fair. They, They challenge us to resolve our conflicts and disagreements in a way that is difficult and hard, yes, but ultimately is healthier and more Christian. 
Well, let's go on and read the rest of the story. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said, for you have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. I mean, when a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. And I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me, David, by the Lord, that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. And so David gave his oath to Saul. Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. You see, David's words of reconciliation deeply moved Saul. His awareness of his narrow escape and and David's kindness calls him to break out in tears. And he sees the conflict now in a different light. And he confesses to David that David has been righteous and innocent, but he has treated David badly. He admits his wrongdoing. And then he blesses David. He says, may the Lord reward you. They agree to do good to each other. Now, while Saul's promise will only be temporary, David will keep his promise. He will keep his oath to the end. You see, I I think that evidence of true reconciliation is continuing love and and goodness. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, that's pretty hard to do. In fact, I'm not even sure that it's possible to do so without the supernatural love of God in our life. But once you are able to wish somebody well, once you are able to pray for somebody, once you are able to to ask God to bless them instead of praying that they would be run over by a truck, you know that you're, you're making progress, that you are on your way towards reconciliation. And then maybe some people will choose to to refuse to acknowledge the conflict or to even talk about it. Luke 17 says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Now, this seems to be saying that that you only forgive somebody if they repent, if they're sorry, and, and that's true. I can't forgive someone who won't repent and admit they've sinned against me, but even if they never do, I am still called to maintain an attitude of forgiveness towards that person. I do not have the right to withhold forgiveness and harbor bitterness in my heart. Now, please don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean forgiveness at any cost. You are not required to become a doormat and let people walk on you, to abuse you, to take advantage of you, or to sin against you. But Paul writes this in Romans 12. He says, if it is possible, if it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. So the Bible calls us to strive for peace even when we know that there are limits involved. Paul knew from firsthand experience that it is unrealistic to expect everybody to get along. You just can't do it. In fact, he got into a disagreement with one of his best friends, Barnabas, 
You may remember it was Barnabas that that brought Paul into the church at first when no one else would because they knew about his murderous past. And yet Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement over John Mark that could not be solved, it could not be fixed, and the two men went their separate ways. Reconciliation is hard work. It It goes against our nature to resolve our issues. It Can we be honest? It feels good to hold a grudge, doesn't it? Just a little bit in us, doesn't it feel good to hold a grudge? But it's important for those of us who want to be Christ followers to allow truth to override our feelings. Refusing to deal with conflict will cost us something spiritually. Holding on to a grudge will stunt your spiritual growth and maturity. It will. C.S. Lewis wrote, everyone thinks that forgiveness is a lovely idea until we have to forgive somebody. (laughs) We love the idea of reconciliation, don't we? We love the idea of loving your enemies until we have to do it ourselves. But even more importantly, reconciliation is what we are to be about. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. We get to be a part of that. God is calling you and me to join his worldwide movement of bringing reconciliation. It's our mission. It's our calling. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been given the same ministry. And what that means is that when we see someone, anyone in this world who is left out, anyone who is excluded, anybody who is shut out or shut down, not in place in God's family, for whatever reason, the rest of the world can shrug their shoulders. The rest of the world can sit on the sideline, but not us. We choose not to write anybody off. We don't discard anybody. We don't decide that this relationship is not worth saving. We choose to be an ambassador for Christ. And we do it because it's not about us. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, in this moment, as we prepare for Holy Communion, bring to our mind, God, if there's anybody that we've been holding at arm's length, Somebody, God, that we had a a falling out with. Maybe it was just recent. Maybe it was a year ago. Maybe it was 10 years ago. But, God, we've been putting it off far too long. And we know that now is the time to heal that relationship. Give us the courage, O God, to be the first person to reach out, to mend fences, And help us, O God, in this ministry of reconciliation to realize that this is our calling as the church. This is our calling as Christians. This is what you came for. This is what you died for. This is why you rose from the dead, to bring reconciliation to this world.
God, hear this, our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.